Well, you may be seated. I was going to pray before the message, but the song was a fitting song to serve as our prayer, so may the Lord graciously do as we have asked him in our song. Pretty much everyone here knows, even including the children, you know your five main senses of sight and smell and hearing and taste and touch. But you may not know or you may just have forgotten or just don't hear much about the fact that we all actually have seven senses. We have seven senses, the other two being our proprioceptive and vestibular sense. These are big scientific words. It just means that we have spatial awareness, we have orientation, and we can reorient ourselves, and we have balance in regards to our physical surroundings. When all seven of these senses are working together, we are able to interact with and perceive and engage with our physical world around us in ways that are both safe and beneficial for us and others. Well, what's really unique to me and special about these other two senses, the sense of proprioception and the vestibular sense, is the fact that toddlers, those from 12 to 18 months, maybe even up to two years, they have their first five main senses pretty much fully intact. They can see and taste and touch and so forth, just like every other human can. But their proprioceptive and vestibular senses, that is their spatial awareness, their orientation, their ability to balance themselves, isn't great. That's why they're called toddlers, because they toddle. They weeble, they wobble, and they fall down very easily. It doesn't take much wind, a hill, steps, a rug, a toy, somebody bumping into them, and they fall down. They can't, they can't correct and keep their balance or get up and reorient themselves very well. But it gets developed over time, and some people develop it greatly. You think of professional athletes and their agility and coordination. You think of an Olympic figure skater or, or, or diver or a gymnast on the balance beam, how do they hold that balance or holding onto the rings? How do they twist and flip and turn such they not only land safely, but beautifully? It's through these senses as they're working as they ought to. They have highly trained these senses. Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to these first century Jewish Christians, telling them, that they, by this time, in their spiritual senses that are much like proprioception and the vestibular sense, they ought to be high-level athletes or at least high-functioning adults. But as it is, they are regressing and becoming like toddlers, indeed, even infants. He's writing to rebuke them for their spiritual immaturity. So if you would, please grab your Bibles and stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God this morning, our sermon text from Hebrews chapter 5. It's Hebrews 5, verses 11 through 6, 3. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. We read, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Why does he care so much about their immaturity? Why is that such a big deal? Like, the mature person gets, Christian gets into heaven, the immature Christian gets into heaven, so what's, what's the problem? Well, these Jewish Christians 
were spiritually immature in the sense that they were not skilled enough to combat theological error in others, let alone in themselves. They were not adequately understanding or applying even the most basic of theological truths. And maybe worst of all, they weren't really trying. Regarding their faith and their commitment, they were weak and waning. Regarding their theology, they were ignorant and unstudied. Regarding their spiritual senses, they were dull, unskilled, and useless. And when you add to all of this that either periodically or on the regular they were being persecuted for their faith and they were were being given false teaching, it is no wonder that they were being tempted to drift from Christ, indeed possibly even to abandon him altogether. And so the preacher of Hebrews again is urging them to hold fast by faith in the superior Savior. Because apostasy... Complete abandonment of Christ is the result of unchecked spiritual drift. And the danger of spiritual drift is greatly enhanced by spiritual immaturity. So do you see the progression? If you are spiritually immature, it is much more easy for you to slip slip into and to drift away from Christ. And that left unchecked will lead to your falling away from God altogether. We may find ourselves toddling, tripping, and stumbling, and being tossed to and fro on the regular if we are not mature, if we're immature, and we do not have our spiritual senses trained to balance and reorient ourselves in this life filled with rocks and roots and waves and winds. And worse than that, each fall we take can weaken our commitment and shake our faith and cool our affections and open us up to sin and even apostasy. Such is the danger for the immature. Think about it. Those who are immature, think of children. It is far easier for children to be deceived and to be manipulated and coerced. It is far more likely for a child to run off into foolishness or into error or to run away in fear. And so he says, grow up. Your very soul depends on it. And even though he says to them, that they are immature and dull of hearing and he's trying to teach them things it's hard for them to grasp, he's going to give it to them anyway. Which I think is somewhat instructive for us on how we and others are to actually mature. But before he gives them a diet fit for active athletes, even though they are mere babes, the author of Hebrews seeks first to rebuke them for their spiritual immaturity and to provoke them, to inspire them, to spur them on to pursue maturity. And the passage that we have at hand this morning, Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 3, is really just the first of three passages in this whole section of Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 12. It's kind of like an, a little interlude when what he's talking about. He ends in verse 10 of Hebrews 5 with talking about Christ as the high priest after order of Melchizedek. And he will pick it up again in chapter 6, verse 20, and on into chapter 7. So the three passages that are in this section of 5, 11 through 6, 12 will be mine this morning where I give you the rebuke and the exhortation. Next week, Pastor Steve will give a warning with a promise. And the week after that, Pastor Nathan will give you an affirmation and encouragement from the next section. And I say that because if you find in this passage today that is filled with rebuke and exhortation, if you find it challenging, good. It's meant to be. But if you find it discouraging or disheartening, well, I hope you don't. I hope you hear it as it's intended for me, one of your pastors, to be a help to you. I hope you hear it as the author of Hebrews intended it for his readers. I hope you hear it as God intends it for you, for your good, and that you won't be discouraged. But if you do walk away discouraged, keep coming, because not every message will be one of rebuke and exhortation. But again, I, I think that this message actually will, while it's a rebuke and an exhortation, will and should be encouraging because it's helpful. It first tells us where we are in our immaturity. Now, not everyone here is equally as immature or mature as everyone else, but I would dare say that all of us, in one way or another, one area or another, need to mature. And if you say, not me, that's evidence. You need to. 
But he doesn't just tell us where we are. He tells us where we could be and should be. He gives us a picture not only of immaturity, but of maturity. And then he helps us to know how to get from here to there. So let's open up the text in Hebrews 5, verses 11 through 14. We have the problem stated for us, which we've already said is spiritual immaturity. And in verse 11, we read, about this, we have much to say. Well, about what? What is this? It refers back to verse 10 and all that he's been saying in that section about Jesus Christ being designated by God as the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's saying, I have much to say about Jesus, the great high priest, and who he is, what he has done, what he's doing, what he has promised yet to do, and what that means for you, both here and now and forevermore. I have so much to say to you. And it's wonderful, glorious, rich, deep truth. But it's hard to explain. Not because it's difficult. No, he says, it's hard to explain. I love how one translator put it. It's unintelligible to you. Not that it's unintelligible. It's hard to explain to you because, he says, you have become dull of hearing. But notice, he says, you have become. Which means that they weren't always this way which I think should be somewhat encouraging because it's not saying that your capacity is less, that you just can't get anywhere beyond where you are, poor soul. No, he's saying you used to be further along than you are now. You've regressed. And so you have become this, which I think should also be encouraging which mean, because it means that you don't have to stay here. You have become this, and yet you can become that again. You have become this. I think it tells us that without progress, we regress. That's how it works. Let me ask you, are you steadily and seriously pursuing real growth? If not, let this be a warning to you. You do not stand still. Not in this world. You either move forward or you are falling behind. You are progressing, right, or you are regressing. There is no stagnation or complacency in the Christian life. But let this also be a call to you to spur you on to pursue maturity so that you do not become dull of hearing. But what does that mean? It's an interesting phrase. The word dull has a variety, a range of meaning. And the phrase itself is somewhat unique. The word dull here especially with the idea of hearing and understanding, can have this sense of being unhealthy, like there's something wrong with your hearing. Reading about Beethoven and how he was increasingly going deaf, and yet he didn't want to tell anybody because it could endanger his position, his job, but also because it was embarrassing, he said. Any other profession, it would be different, he said, but for me, it was downright unbearable. There was something wrong with his hearing. But the other side of this tells you that you're not a victim in it because it's, and the sense of this word dull is that you have a negligence about you, that you're neglecting your responsibilities, which makes you hard of hearing. It's like you're stuffing things in your ears and you can't hear. You're clouding your own mind so you can't really understand as you ought to. Being dull of hearing, then, we might say, is the first aspect of spiritual immaturity, and it is about being, having a sickly commitment to growth. It's sickly because it's unhealthy. It's sickly because it's weak and frail. And the commitment is not what it ought to be, what it should be, and what it can be. It is a sickly commitment to grow. That, yeah, yeah, I mean, I would like to get mature. I'd like to get better, but I'd like to grow in this, but... And you fail to give the active attention. You fail to spend time and energy adequate enough on theological training for your spiritual senses to sharpen. In a word to put it crassly, you're lazy. You're spiritually lazy, both in your practical pursuits of deep theological truth and sharpening your spiritual senses, but also in being hesitant to receive teaching and preaching and counsel and exhortation and admonishments, warnings and rebukes. It's like, I don't, I'm too lazy to feed myself, but even if someone wants to spoon feed me, I go, eh, no, because you don't really want it, not badly enough. Why? Because we learned a couple of weeks ago from Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God and the truth from it is like a piercing hot poker into our hearts. And it exposes us. 
We're too comfortable to let that happen. We're too apathetic. Perhaps we're too rebellious. But where does it come from? How do, how do we get to this point of a committed, uh, a, a lack of committed activity, a sickly commitment to growth? I'm sure there are many, many ways, but let me just give you three possible ones for you. Perhaps for you personally, there is sin that you are not actively repenting of. I'm not saying that, hey, maybe the issue is that you have sin somewhere. Like, that's all of us. But perhaps for you, the reason why your commitment to grow isn't as it should be and strong enough is because you have sin that you're not actively repenting of right now. Perhaps, though, it is spiritual disciplines that you're not engaging in. Spiritual disciplines being both personal and corporate, like of time spending in prayer and in the Word of God, reading it and studying it. Or maybe it's the corporate disciplines of being with the gathered people of God in small groups and in large gatherings on a regular basis to seek to hear from God and to connect with His people. Maybe it's that you're, you're not engaging, or maybe it is that you're engaging, but not really because you don't believe it is that important, indeed necessary. In baseball, there's a lot of acronyms. You have your RBIs, your OSPs, your ERAs, but there's one that you can often see if you're watching the game, you have LOBs. And this is, you don't want to have a high number of LOBs because these are men left on base. Someone gets walked or gets a hit and they get to, to a base, but then if you get your third out before they get to come home, then you've left them stranded. And so they actually count for nothing. We have more access, more easily and freely, of some of the best theological teaching that the world has ever known and has ever had. But are we availing ourselves of it anymore? Or are we leaving all of that on the basis? And it counts for nothing for us. How many opportunities have you had with your brothers and sisters in Christ to gather together and you said, uh, nah, I have better things to do. Perhaps your sickly commitment to growth, though, comes from spiritual substitutes that spoil your appetite for more study of and communion with God. There are really, really useful ways that we can connect with God and glorify Him in everyday life. We just did a podcast talking about the potential good of sports, of playing them or watching them, being engaged in them in various ways. There's ways to engage with sports where you are glorifying God. You bring about good and love of others, and you can even grow spiritually as you connect to it and with these sports in the right way. That's true just about it in any area of life. You can go out into nature and connect with God or be with your kids or, or hang out with your friends or enjoy laughter or good food or vacations or any number of things. We can and should enjoy God through His gifts. Okay? But I wonder if too often we use that as that potential, that possibility as an excuse for not saying no. In our culture today, a bigger issue, I think, is we don't say no enough because we have a fear of missing out. And therefore, because we don't say no enough, we are afraid of missing out on something. We, we therefore lack a strong appetite for the things of God because we are constantly snacking on trivial things. And I'm not saying bad things. Good, used in moderation and with the right focus, but I'm saying that in comparison we're constantly snacking on things that don't matter nearly as much, and so we have no hunger left over for the things of God. We don't turn off the TV, possibly day or night. We don't put down the phone, even when going to walk, or when you go to the bathroom. You don't shut off the radio when you're in the car. You don't put off, take off your smartwatch when you're at home with your family. You don't limit the activities of your kids or say no to the invite. You don't shut down the social media account. You're afraid of missing out on something. But in all of this, we don't do it in order to feast on the rich theology of God. And listen, we, never, we don't say no to these things in order to let our hunger grow. I love Oreo cookies. And I also love my wife's chicken pot pie. 
which birthday meal, by the way. But let's say this, this birthday, she fixes her famous chicken pot pie, and I'm smelling it, and it's, it's just, oh, I'm getting hungry. So I decide, okay, maybe about like, we, we don't eat about 5.30 or 6. So like, say about 4.45, 5 o'clock, I go, I'm just going to have one or two, three Oreos, okay? But instead of eating one or two, I eat one or two sleeves. Just, ah, get them down. What happens to my appetite for chicken pot pie? It dampens it. I won't be able to eat, listen, I won't be able to eat enough and I won't be able to enjoy it enough because my appetite has been squelched. The problem, as Calvin sees it, is that we apply our minds to vanity rather than to God's truth. We apply our minds, like like we're lazy, maybe not at work or with discipline and exercise and food and every other thing, but we are lazy when it comes to applying our minds and our hearts and our lives to God's truth. And we give it to lesser things. We may need to say no more often, beloved. We may need to say no perpetually to some things, even if they're not sinful. Simply that we might increase our hunger for God and to shake off our laziness and to strengthen our commitment to growth. Because if we don't, the result is not good. And it's not because of what it produces necessarily, but because of what it does not produce. Look at chapter 5, verse 12 with me. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He says, though by this time, like there's enough time has passed that you have had, you have not, you don't have enough excuses for why you have not grown further in your understanding and in your spiritual maturity. You have been given enough time that you can grow, but listen, he doesn't say that. He says, you've had enough time that you ought to have grown. Joel Osteen is a famous megachurch pastor, and years ago, he was responding to a question on national television that was something like this. If someone does not believe in Jesus Christ, when they die, will they go to hell? And he squirmed a bit and said, well, I'm, I'm not a theologian, so I, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I can't answer that question as if that excused him from all culpability. Either Joel was truly ignorant of the answer and therefore should not have ever been appointed as a pastor, or he was afraid and answered as a coward and so he was not qualified to be a pastor. Either way, he had been given enough, plenty of time that he ought to have been further along than he is. Now, it's easy for us to pick on Joel Osteen and those like him, but what about us? What about you, brothers and sisters? Are you where you ought to be? Given the time and all the experiences and all the grace that God has given you and all the opportunities that he has given you, are you where you ought to be? A grown man who throws a temper tantrum in the grocery store aisle, uh, store aisle is not a victim. He's not merely the product of his stage of life. He is living beneath his stage of life. He is lower than he ought to be. Do you see, some, some ignorance, some immaturity is not cute, is not innocent, is not understandable or excusable. It's sinful. Immaturity due to laziness and negligence is wickedness. It's wicked. Jesus demands and he deserves better, and we need it. We need better. We simply cannot afford to be spiritually lazy and dull of hearing. Because it only renders us theologically shallow. See, spiritual immaturity is not only having a sickly commitment to growth, but it's also having a shallow theological understanding. 
that we need help even on the basics. Notice in verse 12, it says that you ought to be teachers, but instead you need someone to teach you again. That word must sting a bit. You need to be taught, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. This phrase, the basic principles, it was used to talk about the alphabet, like truly. It was the ABCs. You need to be taught the ABCs of the Christian doctrine. Well, what are the ABCs? Well, there's many, I'm sure. But he names some here in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 where he says, we don't need to lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, which is how we begin the Christian life. You turn away from your sin and from hope, the hopes of uh, hoping in anything else of ever saving you, and you turn with faith toward God and his designated high priest, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again on behalf of sinners like us. Like this is the basics. This is the, the, the entry level. But you ought to by now be further than this. He mentions the instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, which I think he's referring to the Jewish ritual kind of ceremonial cleansings. And so you've been, a, you've been a professing Christian for how long? You've been taught how much and how, for how many years? And you don't yet know the difference between Judaism rituals and the Christian faith? These are the basics. Then he mentions the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Which, again, even every good Jew would believe that there is, when we die, in the end, there will be a resurrection and there will be a judgment. And those who, according to Christian doctrine, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be taken into everlasting life and joy with Him forever. And those who have rejected Him in their sin will be sent to everlasting torment. But that's the basics. This is the ground level. These are merely the ABCs. So he's telling them that spiritual maturity is not only being lazy, it's being ignorant. Inexcusably ignorant. Ignorant of Scripture and of theological doctrines that flow from Scripture. And seeing how the Bible all fits together. Like there's different aspects and layers and levels of this gospel and how theology, this part and this doctrine and this one, how they fit together to make this beautiful tapestry that shows us who God is and what he's up to. In the language of verse 12 where he says, you need milk, not solid food. That striking language of this metaphor I think was meant to rebuke them by helping them to feel the shamefulness of their condition that they have left themselves in. You get the picture of this grown man being in this little crib, sucking his thumb while his mommy has to bring him a warm bottle. And if you don't laugh, you ought to cry because it is ridiculous. It is shameful. He says, this is where you're at. They need someone to teach them the very basics. They don't have the right knowledge, but it's not just about knowledge. It's about having a useful understanding of that knowledge that makes you mature. You see, ideas, truth, has consequences. It changes us. It affects us. What we do and how we do it is determined by what we believe. And so that, those doctrines that we believe, it, it affects every area of our life. The point is to have a kind of knowledge and the understanding that sharpens our spiritual senses so that, come what may, no matter the winds or the waves, no matter what we, wanna, we, we are tempted to, to fall into or to believe this error or that one, no, we will stay balanced. And when something tries to throw us off, we will be reorientated quickly, safely, and skillfully by our spiritual senses which is what he speaks of in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. He says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I, I keep using that, uh, that phrase, spiritual senses, because in the Greek here, in verse 14, the, the phrase powers of discernment, it's literally our faculties or our senses, most often used of our, our five or seven senses. But here it's being used metaphorically to speak of our spiritual senses. And they need to be trained. 
so that they may be sharpened, not dull, not sluggish. That's what he's speaking of here is that those who are immature have a sickly commitment to growth, shallow theological understanding, and they have sluggish spiritual senses. Sluggish in that they're slow to react. You cannot be a well-trained athlete and move slowly and have poor reaction time. These are those that are not trained to discern good from evil. They're unskilled. They're lazy. They're ignorant. And they're unskilled. They're unskilled in being able to spot the lies of the evil one. Unskilled in being able to see and to refute the false teaching of his servants. They're unskilled in being able to detect and avoid the the minds of immoral temptation that are laid all around for us. To be unskilled here is being unskilled and being being unable to know and to utilize the truths of God's Word and His gospel. Safety. For safety and for benefit for yourself and for others. To be mature then would be the opposite, right? To be a teacher. To be a skilled, discerning teacher. But he says, you're the opposite of that. Because you don't have your spiritual senses rightly trained. To have them trained is to distinguish good from evil. And that means here being able to apply rich theological truths to your life so that you can steadfastly live for and hope in Jesus Christ alone. That's what it means to be spiritually mature. To be so pursuing, to have a strong commitment for, right, to pursue it, you have a, a, a serious and deep theological understanding that it gives you sharp, not sluggish, spiritual senses that enables you to take the rich theology you have learned and understood and to make it useful so you can determine which is good and better and best and that which is evil and worse so that your life will be steadfastly living for Jesus and hoping in Jesus. So that when you are pushed this way and that, being mature having your spiritual senses sharpened means that you won't easily lose your balance. And if you do, you will reorient quickly and you'll get up and you'll keep going. Being immature, however, means that the ever so uh, subtle false teaching when it comes to you, a mere child, you won't be able to refute it because you won't even recognize it. When the worldly messages match up with your own fleshly desires, you won't be able to flee temptation because you won't see it for what it is or you might not even want to. As long as you are failing to mature, to grow your love for, your obedience to, your hope in, and your worshipful allegiance to, Jesus Christ will be in danger. Spiritual immaturity is having a sickly commitment to growth. It's being spiritually lazy. It's having a shallow theological understanding and therefore being spiritually ignorant. And it's having a sluggish spiritual senses, being unskilled, And so he's telling them this to rebuke them. But he moves on from this to exhort them. If verses 5 through 11 of, uh, sorry, 11 through 14 of chapter 5 were the problem, then chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 are the solution to pursue spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity, as we have said, has three parts just like spiritual immaturity. It's just the opposite. Instead of a sickly commitment to growth, it is a strong commitment to growth. It gives you, it's one where you give your attention to and you spend your time and energy on seeking to theologically grow your spiritual senses. It means to not have a, a shallow theological understanding, but a serious theological understanding that moves from the basics to ever-deepening truth. And it means to not have a sluggish spiritual sense, but sharp spiritual senses that are theologically trained to distinguish good from evil, so that you may live for and hope in Jesus steadfastly to the end, no matter what. Verses 12 and 14 here, I think, are encouraging because they tell us not only what we ought to be, giving us a picture of spiritual maturity, but they tell us, they show us what we can be. What we can be. The question is, do you want it? Do you want to be mature? Do you want to be able to operate and function and engage in your spiritual life with safety and skill in the midst of every storm of life and scam of false teachers and schemes of the devil? 
do you want it? And do you want it badly enough to pursue it? Knowing that it is sometimes painful and long and an arduous process. If you do, a preacher of Hebrews says, follow me. In verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. When he says here, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, that might be confusing. As one commentator said, and I don't think I could say it better, he says that leaving here does not mean to despise or abandon the elementary doctrines. The point is that the beginning is the beginning and not a stopping place. It is the door to progress and the springboard to achievement. And so he says that we ought to leave the elementary doctrine in the sense that we ought to not lay again a foundation of repentance or of all these other things. We don't lay again the foundation. Which doesn't mean that we don't ever need to be reminded of the basics. I mean, even professional athletes need to be reminded again every once in a while. <laughs> hey, last game, you, you let two ground balls go under legs because you didn't get down low enough. You know that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Because it's not as though we, they forget it entirely. They forget the importance, the necessity and value of it. And so we might tell one another, hey, you, you know that's not healthy or wise. I know, you're right, you're right. But it's not as though we've forgotten it entirely. But if it comes to the point where you're saying, I don't even know really what this is or how this works, or be like a batter getting up to the box without his bat going, sup? The ump's like, you forget something? Uh, I don't know what. The bat? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What, what's this for? For hitting the ball? Like, it doesn't make any sense. You, 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 can't, you can't function that way. If you regress and become more and more immature, you won't be able to function spiritually hardly at all. And you put yourself in danger of spiritual drift and even apostasy. So he says that we need to not outgrow the foundation. Rather, we need to build upon it and grow from it, having it firm under our feet. Recently, God has been rebuking me of way I think um, that I've been feeling. I don't think this way, and I definitely don't speak this way, but I, I do believe that I feel this way, and so I have acted this way for possibly my entire Christian life. I don't know. But I get the sense, the feeling maybe that spiritual maturity means that I will one day outgrow grace. I know that sounds dumb, because it is. It's not possible. But I, I, I notice that when I feel like I'm, I'm serving well and obeying well and I'm, I'm being faithful and something good doesn't go my way, I'm thinking, hey, what, what gives? God, I, that shouldn't happen. Like it's not about grace, but it's about my works. Or when I sin and I'm beating myself up for it, saying, oh, I, there's, there's no way that I can, I can serve or love people well. And God says, you, you just prove that you still need my grace. And the more you grow and the more you become Christ-like, listen, you actually need his grace more. Because grace isn't just about forgiveness. It's also about strengthening you, pardoning you, yes, but empowering you also. To persevere at that level of Christ-likeness, you need more grace to keep you, more grace to drive you further up and further in. You never outgrow grace. You don't outgrow the basics. You grow from them. And so he says to grow on to maturity. But how? I think verse 11 of chapter 5 gives us a clue. About this we have much to say. And because there is much to say, there is much for us to hear. There is much for us to read and to study and to think about. There is much for us to grow and to learn in. We grow by digging deeper into the rich doctrines of Christ, by applying more specifically the truth of the gospel, by diving further into the depths of the oracles of God, by seeing and seeking to see more of the beauty of the word of righteousness. You see, beloved, there is heart-changing, faith-strengthening. There is Christ-exalting usefulness in good, solid, rich, deep theology. Practically speaking, pick up a book and read it. 
Pick up this book and study it. You gotta listen to, to good preaching and to lectures, and you gotta sit and think and discuss and apply. Maybe you need to read scripture in a way you haven't before. Maybe you need to read other good, thick theology books and learn terms that you don't even know exist right now. Maybe you need to dive deeper into these things because you need solid food. And you must chew thoroughly. You must chew thoroughly in order to digest beneficially, in order to get the nutrients you need for growth. And the more solid food you have, the more nutrients for growth you will receive. Now, I could hear some of you maybe saying, yeah, what? I, I've heard of people, or maybe I know personally, those who are really theologically sound, and, or they, they're scholars, and they had yet shipwrecked their faith by immorality or by compromising their doctrine. So how can you say this? Or maybe you even say this. Listen, I've spent a better portion of my life reading and studying good theology and the Word of God, even maybe teaching it. And you still struggle. Maybe you're saying, I know more about theology than most people ever will, and yet I still sin, and sometimes I feel weaker than ever before. So don't tell me that all I need to do to become more spiritually mature is to grow in my theology. I've tried that. And that's where you're at this morning. I, I hear you. I felt that. And I don't want to imply that a theological scholar is somehow automatically more spiritually mature than everyone else, because that's not necessarily the case. However, the Scripture is clear. While theological understanding is not the same as spiritual maturity, you cannot spiritually mature without theological understanding. Do you hear that? I was wrestling over this um, very thing recently struggling with it. And it was like God um, reminded me that, listen, if you feel like you've gone deep enough to really test out these waters and to see, hey, I, I've gone really deep in some theological areas, maybe more than most, and yet I still struggle with, 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 with sin or with faith. And I mean, going deeper, is it really going to change much? And at this, the Spirit of God was like saying to me, you've gone deep? then go deeper. Go deeper. <laughs> how arrogant and how naive, how childish to think that we have exhausted the infinite truth of the glorious God and His gracious gospel. How utterly foolish and how immature to imagine that you have plumbed the depths of the bottomless ocean of the riches of divine doctrine. I was um, recently, recently watching... Hey, one of those shark, I don't know if it's shark week or it's like shark season now, I don't know. But they're diving down and swimming with great white sharks. Um, not bright, but they're, they're doing it. And they're going deep. This one was a, this lady was a master diver. She was going down diving without a breathing apparatus, 60 feet. She can hold her breath for almost five minutes. I was like blown away thinking, that's crazy. And then God says, you think that's deep? Try the Mariana Trench. It's over 36,200 feet deep. You think you've gone deep in theology because you know this much? You have not yet scratched the surface. You haven't gotten there. Go deeper. The reality is, the more you know, the deeper you need to go. The more you've experienced, the more you need the more you're doing for Christ, the more of Him and His Word and His truth you need. Nothing less will sustain you. That said, if you find yourself still struggling with sin and faith after decades of study and learning and of going deep, three things. First, welcome to the club. Secondly, not only is that normal, it's not good. And so perhaps when you're doubting that seeking more of God in His Word and if learning of His truth to apply it to your life 
and to be able to distinguish good from evil so that your, your life for Christ and your hope in Christ will be steadfast. If you don't think that's going to work, even though his word says so, then check your focus. Check your focus. You, you see, it's not an automatic formula that can be mastered and manipulated. Oh, I, I read three theological books this week. Now I won't ever struggle with sin or faith. You can't do that. It takes humility, which, sadly and maybe not surprisingly, those who know more often struggle with humility, don't they? Because knowledge can puff up. But it requires humility, and it requires faith, sincere faith. And are you trusting in your pursuit or the one you're pursuing? Are you trusting in my efforts of seeking more of God? Well, that will just change me, change me automatically, and I'll just do it. And God, I'll see when I'm done studying and learning and growing. No, that's not how it works. God sanctifies us. He does it through his word and through the gospel truth from it. But he sanctifies us. Trust in him. And yes, it does involve intentional effort. You cannot be lazy and grow spiritually. But thirdly, you still need to. You still need to go further up and further into the inexhaustible riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need more. We all do. The overall point of, I think, his message in this passage is that in order to obtain all the fullness of the blessings of God that have been secured by the high priest, Jesus Christ, you must, you simply must hold fast by faith in our superior Savior. But in order to do that, listen, you, in order to be stable and quickly reoriented when knocked around by the waves and winds of the pains and lies of this life, you must pursue maturity. You cannot ho keep hoping in Christ and living for, for Christ if you're not pursuing maturely. And in order to pursue this, we must pursue deeper, fuller, greater, and more practical understanding of the glorious, rich truths of God's Word. We simply must. That's how we go on to maturity. But I love that phrase. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. That's a beautiful phrase, but I think that actually the literal Greek translation is even better. It says, let us be carried on to maturity. It's always, I, I, I love when the New Testament writers do this. They give you a passive thing that you're commanded to do. Not carry yourself, but you go and have somebody carry you. And here it's a passive, but it's called a divine passive, which means God is the one who carries you. So go and be carried by God on into maturity. That's what he's saying. As one commentator says, that the passive here gives the thought of personal surrender to an active influence. You personally surrender to the active influence of God in your life. You, you connect this with chapter 6, verse 3, which says, and this we will do. We will be carried on to maturity if God permits. This we will do in spite of all opposition, in all our, both inside and out, in spite of all of that, this we will do. If God permits, that is, if God enables us, if God is with us and for us, if we are truly His. Because maturity isn't just a natural process of the passing of time. We all know that. There are many adults who have never grown up, right? How much more so spiritually? No, the issue is that God actively is actively involved in the process of maturing His saints. He's calling us. He's leading us to mature, but we resist Him. We resist it in our fear and our selfishness and our laziness and our pursuit of maturity. It really certainly does require hard work on our part, but in another deeper sense, we are simply surrendering ourselves to the path that our high priest has already walked on before us and is calling us to walk on now by his help as he walks with us. So yes, even if we have regressed, back into immaturity time and time and time again. By our sinfulness of what we have done or what we have left undone, 
even in all of that, Christ, our Melchizedekian high priest, will forever sympathize with his people. He'll forever sympathize with us and care for us, and he will carry us. He will carry us on into maturity, covering our sins so as to keep us connected to God. All by grace. Beloved, because of this masterful, amazing, beautiful, glorious, wonderful grace of God in Christ, we have every reason to be confident. We have every reason to be encouraged, every reason to be stirred up and spurred on, motivated to pursue maturity. Having our theology enriched and our spiritual senses trained for the preservation and progress both of ourselves and others around us. Our laborious and painful pursuit of spiritual maturity is at the heart of it a humble surrendering to God. It is a surrendering to, that is both submission to His will and a faith that His will is better for us than our own and that He, by His grace, through His Son, because of the work of His Spirit in us, He has the power, He has the mercy and the commitment to bring about His will in our lives. We surrender to Him by submitting to and trusting Him in all of that. And for those who have their spiritual senses attuned to Christ, you know it's true. And you long to surrender to Him all the more. And the communion meal is for you this morning, but it is not for those who are rejecting Christ. It's not for those who are living in unrepentance and without faith in submission to Jesus. So when others come up to partake in communion in just a moment, I invite you, if you're struggling or in the sense of you're not even sure where you're at spiritually, you think maybe you're not spiritually immature, but maybe you're not even spiritually alive because you know that you're not trusting in Christ, you're not submitting to Him, then stay where you are and pray. Come and see me or one of the other pastors afterwards. It would be our genuine pleasure to talk with you more about it. And if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, you do submit to Him, though not perfectly. And you do trust Him, though not perfectly. And your trust is not in your submission, not in your submission or in your faith, but it's in Him. It's His blood on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. If your hope is in Jesus to be your high priest, and you've had that hope affirmed by other Christians in baptism in a local church, then in just a moment you can exit to your left and come up to the front to the communion tables and grab these elements of bread and juice with the gluten-free being to your far left. And go back to the right to your seat and take them. Take them with others around you, with your family. And realize that what you're doing at the point of conversion was repentance and faith. The basics. But you need to go ever deeper in that. My life is one of surrender to the Lord Jesus. You just go deeper into grace, beloved. Because of and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Whenever you're ready, for those who should come, please come.